Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, we have been exploring chapters 12 to 14 in the book of 1 Corinthians throughout the summer months in a series that we have called Spirit and Church. We parked ourselves in chapter 13, a chapter that's often referred to as the love chapter for the past three weeks, apart from last week where I wasn't here, but we spent three weeks exploring what it looks like for us to love one another as believers. And today we come back to a discussion of spiritual gifts, although this one will feel a little bit different. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is taken up with a discussion of two spiritual gifts in particular, prophecy and tongues. Now, I said this message will feel a little different. What I mean by that is that my approach will be a little more like teaching than preaching this morning. But I want to begin by reading verses 1 to 25 of chapter 14 in your hearing. This is God's word, and this is what it says. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise... If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders 
or, an un, or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or un, outsider enters, he is convicted by all since he is called to account by all and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Well, <clears throat> there's a lot in those Verses. I know that uh, there are probably lots of different ideas and different positions that you may come to a set of verses like that with. And the best way I know how to unpack this or try to unpack this for you is to try to answer some of the fundamental questions about these types of spiritual gifts. The first message in this series was titled, Four Questions About Spiritual Gifts, and I creatively titled this message, Three More Questions About Spiritual Gifts. Now, I'll just tell you up front, the first two questions are a little bit more on the theoretical side, and the third one I'm trying to make a little more practical. But the first question is simply, how should we think about the miraculous spiritual gifts? Now, you'll notice that I put quotation marks or air quotes around the word miraculous, and I did that because in reality, all of the spiritual gifts are miraculous. They are, as I said in the first message, supernatural empowerings by God to do what we cannot do in our own power or strength. But I think you all know what I mean by miraculous spiritual gifts. These are the ones that we tend to place in a different category. Now, chapter 14 is focused on the gifts of prophecy and tongues, but we could easily add gifts like miracles and healing that we saw earlier in chapter 12. So how should we think about these types of gifts? And there are three main approaches that have been taken to these miraculous spiritual gifts. The first one is what is often referred to as the cessationist approach. As the name suggests, this is the position that believes that the miraculous gifts like tongues and prophecy have ceased and are no longer operative today. They have ceased. The basic argument is that these miraculous spiritual gifts were functional during the apostolic age or during the time of the apostles as a way to establish the credibility or the veracity of the gospel. So you need these accompanying miracles so to declare that this was, in fact, true. This is why when you read through the book of Acts, you find numerous accounts of the apostles and others performing miracles in a way that we don't see today, apart from TV faith healers. But the main argument for the cessationist position is connected to an understanding of prophecy. In Ephesians chapter 2, we are told that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, we're going to come back to this, but essentially the argument boils down to this. If prophecy is the authoritative revelation of God, then anyone claiming to prophesy today is essentially saying that what they are saying carries the same weight as Scripture. Now, you can see, or hopefully you can see how that would be problematic. Why would we need a Bible if there's all sorts of prophecy that's on par with Scripture going on around us? 
Now, maybe you hear this idea, the cessationist position, you're just tempted just to dismiss it out of hand. Let me just say a couple things about it. The first is that we are all cessationists to one degree or another, or at least we ought to be. One of the gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere in the New Testament is that of apostleship. And one of the qualifications for apostleship was that the individual had encountered Jesus in his resurrected form. That is why in Acts chapter 1, when Judas is replaced, one of the criteria was that this was someone who was a witness of Jesus' resurrection. It's why when Paul wants to establish himself as an apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the risen Jesus? So if that's the criteria, no one today qualifies, right? That office has ceased. I think we're all also cessationists in the sense that we believe that all of the gifts will eventually be rendered unnecessary. Back in chapter 13, we read this, love never ends. As for prophecy, as for prophecies, they will cease. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now there's debate as to what when the perfect comes means. I think the most natural way to read it is when Jesus returns. And I think you have to do all sorts of mental gymnastics to make it mean at the closing of the New Testament canon or at the end of the apostolic age. But I think there's another thing we should understand about the cessationist position. And that is just to say, in fairness, it's often mischaracterized along the lines of, well, these people don't believe in miracles. They don't believe that God's spirit is active in the world today. There's no healing. There's no miracles. That's not actually the case. They just don't believe that any individuals are endowed with those particular spiritual gifts today. Now, I'm not convinced biblically by the cessationist arguments, but I think a good number, or I know a good number of, of good Bible teaching pastors and churches are. So there, there's a second position. There's a second way that the gifts are often approached, and that is what we might call the charismatic position. The word charismatic comes from the Greek word charismata, which simply means grace gift. Now, all of the spiritual gifts, including gifts like administration and hospitality, are grace gifts. But the term charismatic is usually applied to a particular tradition in the church that places a greater emphasis on spiritual gifts. Not so much the gifts like teaching and administration, but especially on gifts like tongues and prophecy and healing. Charismatic is a wide-ranging term. There's actually a lot of good that has come from the charismatic movement. There's an emphasis on the spirit-empowered life, a spirit-empowered ministry. I think a charismatic emphasis has also been helpful in countering what can become a kind of dead orthodoxy where you get the theology right, but there's no heart behind it. Some churches in the more Reformed tradition have earned their nickname as sort of the frozen chosen Right, And sometimes you see it in the way worship is expressed in a gathering. <clears throat> right? But there are some inherent weaknesses in the charismatic approach as well. In many charismatic traditions, the gift of tongues is seen as the sign that you have the Holy Spirit. And this leads to a sort of two-tiered Christianity. 
those who are spirit-filled as evidenced by their speaking in tongues and those who are not. There's also often an overemphasis on experience and sometimes that experience trumps scripture. Yes, I know the Bible says that, but my experience is different than that. Many observers have labeled what lies at the heart of much charismatic theology as over-realized eschatology. So Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the apostles gave us a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven looks like when it comes in its fullness. But that doesn't mean that our expectation should be that all the physical ailments are healed on the spot now. There's a tendency in some charismatic circles to expect that a Christian's experience will always be marked by physical health, financial prosperity. Those things that will be ours in the resurrection are expected and often demanded now. Name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. So there's a third way of approaching the spiritual gifts that we see described throughout the New Testament. To continue with our alliteration, we could refer to this position as continuationism or the continuationist approach. This is the position which asserts that the spiritual gifts have not ceased to function in our day, but neither are they to be obsessed over. I think the last two verses of this chapter give some indication of what that might look like in practice. There Paul says, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy... And do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. If you want to know where Crossridge lands theologically with regard to spiritual gifts, we land here. You could call me a cautious continuationist. The cautious part comes from what we read in the chapters we've been studying this summer and from observation But chapter 12 begins by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So chapter 12, this section begins with Paul saying that he doesn't want us to be uninformed about spiritual gifts, and he also doesn't want us to be led astray by spiritual manifestations. I think that's really important counsel for us to consider. It gives us some caution around these things. But the continuationist part also comes from these verses and elsewhere in the New Testament. Look now at verse 1. Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, if you hold to a cessationist position, you have to look at verse 1 and really all of this chapter as having no continuing significance for us today. I'm, I'm just not sure that's a healthy way to approach a section of Scripture. Andrew Wilson says that we ought to approach Scripture with what he calls a presumption of obedience. Now, he readily admits presumption of obedience doesn't make for a great acronym, but it does make for a great practice. You can figure that out later. (laughs) That is to say, we approach Scripture with the thought of how do I obey what Scripture calls me to do? Now, to be sure, there are some exceptions to this. My guess is that when you've read 2 Timothy 4.13... 
which says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. None of you have made travel plans to go to Troas to search for Paul's jacket and his books. We know those were specific instructions to Timothy in the first century. We understand that. But when we come to the matter of spiritual gifts, we we find repeated exhortations, including repeated exhortations about prophecy. So Romans 12 tells us, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, use it in proportion to our faith. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.12, which says, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. The point is just that we're not talking about an isolated piece of instruction, but something that is expounded at length here in chapters 12 to 14, and something that is written to other churches as well. So therefore, I think we ought to be careful about dismissing these things out of hand without clear biblical statements to the contrary. Now, it's beyond the scope of this message, but maybe just worth noting in passing that no one before Augustine or Chrysostom, that is, no one before the 4th century, taught that these gifts had ceased. So that's a little bit about how we ought to think about the spiritual gifts. A second question we might have is, what exactly is prophecy and what are tongues? So nothing controversial about either of these things, I know. I actually had a friend reach out to me last week to see if I could come speak at his church later this month. He said the topic was wide open, and then he jokingly added, maybe you want to preach about something uncontroversial like tongues or women in ministry or snake handling. I was like, look, be careful what you wish for. I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians 14. That's tongues this week. And in the second half of the passage, it's that women ought to remain silent in the church. So I'm not doing the snake handling, but you might get one of those two. Probably should have booked some vacation time. Um, And actually, in truth, because I was sick last week, I'm going to have to delay the second half of the chapter. But let's, let's get into this question. What is prophecy and what are tongues? So what is prophecy? Verse 3, I think, gives us a bit of a definition. It says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And verse 4 then adds to that uh, by saying this. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. So if we're just going by what is written in those verses, we could say that prophecy is about the encouragement, the building up, and the consolation of God's people. That's what it's for. One scholar defined it this way. He said, prophecy as a gift of the Holy Spirit combines pastoral insight into the needs of persons, communities, and situations with the ability to address these with a God-given utterance or longer discourse leading to challenge or comfort, judgment or consolation, but ultimately building up the addressees. Right, bit of a technical definition, but I think that's a good definition of what prophecy is. But this is not what most people think about when they think about prophecy. When most people hear the word prophecy, what they think about, they think about something predictive. So I prophecy, or I prophesy, that the Canucks will win the Stanley Cup in 2022. Now, maybe not a great example, because the moment you hear that, you know it's a false prophecy, right? You're just like, we we shouldn't listen to this guy. 
Now, there is sometimes a predictive element to prophecy, but not always. It is actually at its core about the building up, the edification, the encouragement, or the consolation of God's people. But maybe even more than the predictive aspect of prophecy, when most of us think of prophecy, we think of the Old Testament prophets, who often began their communication with, Thus says the Lord. If you were claiming to be speaking a word from the Lord, you had better be right. Right? That that thing better come to pass. So Deuteronomy 18 gives us this instruction. It says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You you don't need to be afraid of him. So the question is, does prophecy like that exist today? Can anyone preface their words with, thus says the Lord? Well, unless you are quoting scripture, I don't think so. Because I don't think you can avoid the conclusion that their words would then be on par with Scripture. But I also don't think that that means that God no longer reveals things today. And I think we would do well to distinguish between big P prophecy and small p prophecy. Now, in some ways, I think we could say that the New Testament apostles were sort of the equivalent of the Old Testament prophets in terms of their authority. And anyone claiming a thus says the Lord authority to what they're saying today ought to be avoided. That's the big P kind of prophecy. Now, there are groups and there are individuals who claim such things. One prominent church runs a supernatural school of ministry. I, I looked through the kinds of courses offered. felt like I was reading the course catalog for Hogwarts. The the kind of prophecy described in the New Testament seems to have a small p characteristic about it. Even if we just think about this chapter as a whole, 1 Corinthians 14, it's interesting, Paul has to kind of advocate for prophecy, right? He has to remind them, look, look, you need to know prophecy is actually superior to tongues. And that would seem strange if it were seen as communicating the authoritative words of God, And what we actually see in the examples of prophecy in the New Testament seem different than that. So later in this chapter, Paul will say, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh or judge what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So the other is that the idea is that others are to sit and and evaluate or sit in judgment on the prophecy. If you want to get a look at New Testament prophecy, Acts chapter 21 is a fascinating study in relation to this because there's a a couple of examples of prophecy recorded there. Luke records the first one by saying this, when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit... They were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, right? So these individuals, these disciples, seemed to have received some kind of message through the Spirit, and they wanted to pass it on to Paul. Look, don't go to Jerusalem. 
the interesting thing about this prophecy that Paul ought not to go to Jerusalem is that he goes to Jerusalem. It seems as if he evaluated their words, their prophecy, and decided it was still God's will for him to go. Now, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he's arrested. And Wayne Grudem suggests that these prophets had probably received some revelation of Paul's impending suffering if he did go to Jerusalem, and they interpreted that to mean he shouldn't go. It seems to be the nature of prophecy as we find it in the New Testament. Second example from Acts 21 is equally instructive. Still on their way to Jerusalem, Paul and his crew come to the city of Caesarea. And it says, while we were there, staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So the prophet's prediction is that the Jewish people will bind Paul's hands and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. Well, here's how things played out later in Acts 21. It says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. For he had previ- they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up. The people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And what's interesting about that is that it wasn't actually the Jews who bound Paul's hands. Was the Gent- and handed him over to the Gentiles. It was the Gentiles, the Romans, who rushed in. The Jews dragged him out of the city. They were trying to kill him. And the Gentiles intervened. They bind his hands with chains. So does that make Agabus or other individuals mentioned in Acts 21 false prophets? No. It just illustrates that the nature of New Testament prophecy is not exactly the same variety of what we might be used to from the Old Testament. And I would just say that I do think the small p kind of prophecy exists today. It's a really interesting example of what I would consider to be prophetic activity from the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. A man in attendance at Spurgeon's church describes what happened like this. He says, Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me. And in his sermon, he pointed to me and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays, and I did. I should not have minded that, but he also said that I took nine pence the Sunday before, and there was a fourpence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day, and fourpence was just the profit, but how should he know that? I could not tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first, I was afraid to go again, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards, I went, and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. And then Spurgeon added this comment to the man's testimony. He said, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases 
in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. Now look, Spurgeon pastored back in the 1800s. The reason I share his story is because he would have identified himself as a cessationist, that these gifts have ceased. But I don't know how to describe what he did other than saying it's a kind of prophecy or prophetic activity. Now, look, I read books from differing perspectives in preparation for this message. Tom Schreiner is a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary. He's a cessationist, but he wrote a helpful book about spiritual gifts, and I found what he said about prophecy to be helpful. He said the difference between cessationists and continuationists is in some ways insignificant at the practical level when it comes to prophecy. For what continuationists call prophecy, cessationists call impressions. So wherever exactly you might land with regard to these things, there ought to be no doubt that the Lord continues to reveal things to us and to prompt us to act through the words of others. This is why sometimes you are cut to the quick in the midst of hearing a sermon. It's not the preacher's words. It's the Lord speaking to your spirit through them. So that's prophecy. What then are tongues? Well, the first reference to speaking in tongues in the New Testament is found in Acts chapter 2, where it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So that's the day of Pentecost. And the rest of Acts 2 goes on to say that what happened on that day is that men from every nation were gathered together and they heard foreigners speaking in their own language and the tongues speakers were speaking in a language they did not know but it was understood by those who did know the language. And the question many people have when they come to 1 Corinthians 14 is, is that, is that the same phenomenon that's being described here? I think the answer is yes and no. People were definitely speaking in a language they did not know. But I do think in 1 Corinthians 14, there does seem to be some kind of private dimension to this that wasn't present in Acts chapter 2. So verse 2 says, One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Later in the chapter, in verse 28, it says, But if there's no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now look, I I think there's some mystery to this. I'm not going to pretend to understand all that's involved with this gift. As unsatisfying as that might be to you, I'm going to leave it there because I actually want to say something pastoral from this passage. The third question that requires an answer is how should a church exercise spiritual gifts? Now, this message has been somewhat theoretical, and I want to try and make it a little more practical with a couple of pastoral reflections. When we seek to answer the question of how a church should exercise spiritual gifts, there are two main points of application that I see in this passage. The first one is that we ought to exercise spiritual gifts in a way that builds up the church. Now, I'll be shorter on this point because it's something we've been seeing throughout this series, but just notice the theme of this passage. Verse 3. 
The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 4, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Verse 6, now, I, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Notice also verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And this ought to be true in the exercise of all spiritual gifts. The goal should not be to draw attention to yourself and your gifts. Back when I did college ministry, I had a worship leader who I went through an interesting season with. One of the nights that he was leading worship, he just kind of stopped playing guitar. He got on his knees, hands raised. Seemed like he was just genuinely caught up in worship at that moment. People certainly talked about it afterwards and were struck by his passion for worshiping God. But this started to become something of a pattern. I had no doubt of his genuineness. But we did have to sit down and talk because of the way it had become a distraction. Instead of the focus being on the group's collective worship of God and their mutual upbuilding, the focus became his own private worship experience. Now, the truth is, this can happen with any of the spiritual gifts. Whatever our spiritual gift or gifts might be, they ought to be exercised in such a way not to draw attention to ourselves, but to build up the church. So if someone's gift is preaching, the the result should not be that everyone talks about what a great preacher that person is. The result should be that the church is equipped for works of service through that person's preaching or teaching. So as we exercise spiritual gifts, we want to do it in a way that builds up the church. Second thing to note is that we ought to exercise spiritual gifts in a way that is conscious of unbelievers. Now, that might seem like an odd point to make in light of the fact that when we gather as a church, we gather for the worship of God. So in one sense, we might think, well, who cares what anyone else thinks about what we're doing? But That's not the attitude reflected here. Listen again to verses 23 to 25. And there it says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy in an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, I have some experience with this. Back in my seminary days, I worked for UPS. Uh, I wore the brown uniform, drove one of the brown trucks. I affectionately refer to my time there as my stint in the brown army. Um, we had about 60 drivers at the time. I got to know some of them fairly well. There were a couple of other believers, but for the most part, most of them didn't have any connection to Jesus or the church. There was a guy by the name of Don who I had had some significant spiritual conversations with. One of the other drivers was a fellow believer. She had also been seeking to share the gospel with him, and she suggested that Don and I both attend her church one Sunday night. He said he'd go if I came as well. I was happy to oblige. I knew it was going to be an interesting experience the moment the tambourine came out. 
Now, I don't know how to describe that experience other than chaos. There were lots of people speaking in tongues without any kind of interpretation. There were people dancing in the spirit, falling over. There was what I think were supposed to be prophecies. Did I mention the tambourine? Well, Don left rather quickly at the end of that service. The next morning, he very politely said, look, I never want to go back to something like that again. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and unbelievers or outsiders enter, will they not say, you are out of your minds? The point is that while I don't think a church ought to cater its worship gathering to the felt needs of an unbeliever, I do think we ought to be careful and mindful of the fact that we often have unbelievers among us. Now, that doesn't mean stifle the spirit. It means there are some aspects of worship that are best suited to a different setting. So... When it comes to the exercise of spiritual gifts at Crossridge, we want to encourage them. Every Christian has been given a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. We encourage you to use them in a way that builds up the church and in a way that proclaims the gospel of Christ to unbelievers. So let's just pray that God would give us grace as a church around these things. Father, we thank you for your grace that has been shown to us. We thank you for the gifts you have given us, Lord. We pray you would help us to steward them well and to use them in a way that builds up your church, that glorifies you, that speaks to unbelievers among us, that there's something different, that your spirit is here. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to that end, to do all that we do in a way that honors you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.